Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Vayigash, which is covering uh, Genesis chapter 44, verse 18, going through chapter 47, and then also picking up a number of parallel passages. Uh, As we've talked about before, this pivotal section there from Genesis 37 through the end of the book through chapter 50, 50, so Genesis 37 through 50, this is a pivotal section. It's why it takes up so much of the book of Genesis, because it is sprinkled throughout the whole rest of the Bible as a very um, pivotal story and a pivotal um, picture of what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will be doing. So it's got many, many different levels on that. So with all that said, um, we are going to be taking little dips into some of these passages in Ezekiel 37 and Luke 24 and John 20 and 21, and also in Romans chapter 11. And Romans chapter 11 is, again, part of a package of all of Romans, really, because it is a running uh, thought that goes from the beginning of Romans all the way through the end of it, pretty much through the end of it. And this particular section is uh, of Romans really covers Romans 9 through 11. So to pick up the whole part of this little capsule is Romans 9 through 11. But Paul also touches on this earlier on in the letter as well. In uh, chapter 2, he, he picks up on this message. So as we move forward with this particular thing, when we look at the Torah reading of Vayigash, there are three main chunks of this particular passage. And in Genesis 44:18 through chapter 45, you see that there's two thoughts. You're, you're picking things up as it begins in the midst of this interchange here between Yosef and his brothers. And then you're seeing... Uh, as we left things with our last reading at the end of Miketz, you see that Yosef has has triggered the snare. He's set the snare up for his brothers, and he triggered it, and it snapped, and it snapped down on his brother, Benjamin. And so this was basically a put up or shut up, Like if you were playing cards, this would be a call. This would be, okay, show me what you got here, brothers. What is actually in your heart? And so in chapter 46, you see that the descent of Yaakov as he goes down to Mitzrayim and as he's reunited with Yosef in this. And you see this this prophetic little interlude where you see this, this vision that um, Yaakov has as he's going down there. 
And then Genesis uh, 47, you see that Yosef is presenting his family to Pharaoh, and you see this interchange of what their occupation is versus what the Egyptians are. And then you also see that Yosef is enslaving, a very interesting turn of play here, he is enslaving Mitzrayim to Pharaoh. He is consolidating power. And you actually can see this historically, what happened in Mitzrayim. It's history that there was a time when there was Upper Egypt and Upper Egypt being, you know, north because when they say upper and lower egypt it's as the nile flows and the nile flows north the mountains are in the south almost down near ethiopia and they it flows up to the um, as we saw on the map most of our maps are oriented with north at the top and south at the the bottom so the nile is flowing north to the Mediterranean Sea. So the delta that you see on the maps is where Goshen was located. So that is where you see it. And over time, there was a upper Egypt, which is in the south, and there was really a capital down there, and then there was a capital up in the north. So there was a particular time where they see in Egyptian history where instead of there being like little chieftains, similar to like what you see in, um, as we were going through Genesis earlier, where you see all these little chieftains up in Canaan, in Canaan, you know, you have Sodom and Gaza and all these little chieftains around there. Egypt was very much the same, except for one time in history where something happened and it consolidated all of the power under what is became known as Pharaoh or Paro as it is there in Hebrew. So that became a particular pivotal point in history because that moved Egypt in and from that point forward it became a superpower. Yes, uh Deborah. Um it is believed, I mean I've heard some teaching on the fact that that is still in play worldwide is these a president or a dictator comes upon and we are sold we have a social security number and um you know i mean we don't have we haven't given up all our property but it's mostly going to be on its way but we are in a way enslaved to the system but that, that happens yeah i mean it's still any time you have people that are organized into one thing or another you are subject to somebody else now the question is is that is it a so-called benevolent dictator <laughs> or is it not and you see the very interesting thing the interesting play is that with the quote enslavement that happens with yosef what then happens later between the Pharaoh that knows Yosef and knows the God of Yosef and the Pharaoh that does not know Yosef. And then by extension, the God of Yosef. So, yes, I'm sorry. Someone have a... Okay, I apologize. Okay, so with that, we'll just go into our first section here of this basically chapter 44 going into 45. Now, one of the key things that we see is, as it left off at the end of the last Torah reading, 
they're at the kind of the first half. Oh, yes, uh, Deborah. Um, this is Job. Is that our Job? Is that Job? It's oh, Job. Job. No, no, that's that's, that, that's a different one. Uh, Job, was that prior to? It, it means dove. Okay, but that it's, wasn't prior to that. I mean, this, when is, this is happening. It's, our it's Job. a name that means dove, so oh. it shows up in number of places. In but that's not Semitic. when did, no, did, did Job came not. before? Job was before it's, all this. Egypt? It's hard to say, but the way the way that the wording is that a lot of scholars think that that what we call Job was someone who lived uh, sort of sort of a bit separate, maybe in modern day Jordan or East or something like that, and somewhere maybe around the time of Abraham, somewhere between Abraham and and Yosef. That's it's pretty old. So that's that's why it's when when they think of where they put the book, where do you put the book of Job? Because really it should be smack dab in the middle of Genesis, but uh, it's, um, how, how do you then compare that? So, yes, so with this chapter 44, 45, you see then that Yosef is challenging his brothers. You see at the end of Mikatz, he says, okay, he frames his younger brother. He frames his younger brother and then gives a challenge that <laughs> you see this same challenge show it up again and again in scripture where someone makes the declaration, whoever did this will die. And then, uh-oh, <laughs> yes, you make this bold declaration, whoever does this is going to die. You see this several times in scripture. Um, one of those famous times you see in the time of the judges where someone comes out and declares, hey, whatever comes out, I'm going to offer it up to the Lord, and it's his daughter. Uh-oh. Um, so it's one of those things. Thus, when you get down to um, the Gospels, and Yeshua is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't start making grandiose promises and stuff because when scripture says if you make a vow you shall surely pay your vows so be sure you're not over promising and under delivering <laughs> as the saying goes so with this we can see one good thing that comes out as a lesson for all of us and a lesson for not only interfamilial familial uh, relationships, but also between nations and also in the family of God, how you resolve these great disputes that you have, long-standing disputes. So you have this dispute that's been running between Yosef and his brothers, and he puts them to the test with this. Okay, Benjamin is now his life is within Yosef's hands. Or as his brothers think, his life is now in the hands of this seemingly strange foreign leader who seems strangely interested in the dealings of this particular family and has it out for them and keeps seemingly drawing them in bit by bit by bit into this strange intrigue. And as you see, as it's represented back to Yaakov, the father, hey, this guy's a harsh man. As we're down there just trying to deal food, and 
he keeps uh, working us into one intrigue after another. So here now the younger brother is caught in this. What are they going to do? Are they going to proverbially throw him under the bus too? Or into the cistern? Throw him into the pit just like they threw the other brother? The one who was lost as they retell it? Or will they do something different? And then you see who steps up. We saw in our previous study in Miketz that there was two who were stepping up. Who were those two who stepped up? Well, yeah, yeah. Shimon was basically held hostage, but you saw that to their father, Ruben, Reuben and Yehuda both offer, <laughs> make uh, pledges to their father for the safety. For the safety. See, Reuben offers it first. Yehuda does it again when they actually go through with the plan to go down there and buy food. And those were the two that were involved with the whole pit incident earlier. So, very interesting. They were then willing to give up of more than just themselves. They were giving up their own kids, their livelihood, their family line, which was a big deal. That their family line would continue. Big deal. For the sake of someone else. So thus, you can sort of see where Yosef is having an emotional breakdown when he sees this because he had seen his brothers before and they threw him in the pit. They sold him off. And the one Yehuda who sold him off is now throwing it down to say, hey, we put ourselves on the line to our father for his safety for Benjamin's safety. So we don't want to break our father's heart. Well, what did Yehuda and the brothers do to their father with the coat of Yosef and the story that they spun about what happened to Yosef? They broke their father's heart. Uh, yes, Deborah. The question that came to me when I was studying this, I was thinking is, what makes them think that that matters to that culture and to, to Joseph about what their father thinks? So you have to ask your question, why that plea was even made to the Pharaoh, I mean, to, the, um, to Joseph. I mean, he was in second in command, but I thought to myself, uh, wow, why would he care? And why did they bring it up to him? So there must yeah. have been something culturally where the honor of the parents in, in yes. the Egyptian culture that really did matter. Well, well more, than, more than just but, Egyptian, more than, yeah, more than just Egyptian culture, because it's something that you'll see in both um, Near Eastern, meaning Mediterranean, the, the Mesopotamian area, but also Far Eastern, this idea of the honor of the father was a big, big, big deal. And you see it also carried over even into some Western culture as well. The honor of the father and showing honor and keeping honor 
for those in authority, especially your fathers or somebody important in your life, was a big, big, big deal, even to other people. For you could, you should say, for people of honor, showing honor to somebody else is a big, big deal. Throughout time, today, yesteryear, it's always been the same that people without honor will not show honor to people who deserve honor. Those, that's been the same throughout time. Those people of character will respect people of character. Those people without character will not respect people with character. And, you know, we see what happens in today's world if you don't think that your character or who you really are, not just the, the face that you put up in front of everybody, your, quote, marketing, who you actually are matters. Does it matter? And, you know, the question underlying that is, why does character matter? matters to why does it matter to god okay i am holy so you are to be holy is what the lord says but why then is it important of character makes a nation run okay you're gonna buy something you're you're gonna get what you that's a very interesting point you're gonna get what you pay for uh Yes, Pamela, you have your hand up. If they have a healthy respect for ah, so if you have a healthy respect for authority, probably is what you're referring to. Uh, Carrie, you also have your hand up. Go ahead. Character carries reputation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm reminded of is when. Um, I think it was after the golden calf and Hashem was ready to obliterate everybody. <laughs> and, but Moses, he pleaded with him and he brought to Hashem's memory that Hashem was the one that had brought his people out and the nations were watching. They were watching to see what kind of God he really was because yes. what kind of God? All of, the, all of the other gods, you know, you had to behave at whatever whim they had that day. But he is constant, and he's the only one that is constant. And so his character carries reputation, and our, our having integrity, which, you know, which a lot of people liken with character, that is testimony of his goodness and his love for the nations, as well as his chosen people. It's... It's how we shine his light in the world. Is that's it's a really big part of it is having character and integrity. Yes. Character and integrity, meaning that people can depend on what you are going to do and who you are and how you treat other people. That's you can there's another word for that. We call it we can trust what it is that you do and what is a religious term that comes out of trust faith 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 is really trust and trust is what dependable and 
when you think of the great words and names for the Lord that there are, what is one of his great words that comes to us from the Torah? Tour, rock. He is a rock. And Yeshua talked about a rock is what? Something that you can build on because if it's a decent rock and you think of like building your house upon a rock versus, you know, on a day like today when it's pouring down rain and you worry about mudslides or something like that, it's because what? What is underneath your structure is not dependable. It may move on you. It may move unless you are anchored down into something that is dependable. So, you know, you yourself, when it talks about you build your house, you build yourself, you build your life on something that is dependable, that will not move over time. Uh, yes, Alex, you have a comment or a question over here. Readings on the Phoenicians, you know, they were, they, were the, they were the ones that God said, you better get rid of them. They're, they're bad. <laughs> well, they kept going, and they did survive for a while. But It's funny, I, I it's funny uh, how traitor sounds a lot like traitor. Yes. Mm. You know, they were good at making a deal with anybody <laughs> at any time, anywhere, and they were actually allowed to uh, thrive and survive. Greeks and Romans or whoever was bigger dog in the neighborhood yes. actually allowed them to keep doing the things over in Carthage and whatnot. Yeah. Building that huge network all the way along the, uh, uh, North Africa. So, you know, whatever it takes, we'll get this done. Right. Yeah. So it's, that means all, everything's on the table too. Everything right? is on the table. And it's, it's also interesting when we you note know, like the, the Phoenicians and we just read a passage here today in Ezekiel 37 that's talking about that, you know, if you remember the context of Ezekiel, this is a prophet that was kind of speaking on both sides of a great rift that was happening. Not only the rift between north and south, between the kingdom of the south, the kingdom of Yehuda, and the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel, which are basically Ephraim, and then when you read down into Israel's history, the kingdom of the north was, went further away from God with its own holy places, its own holy days, wanted to separate itself further and further and further away from God. And you see the south also do the same thing. But one of the things that you see happen with the prophet Ezekiel is he was prophesying before the exile, especially the four of the exile of the south of the kingdom of Yehuda, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then also prophesying after. So it's very interesting. You get some of what he's saying that's coming to people before the exiles, and then also what's coming to it after. So you get the interesting perspective. Here's what's coming. Here's why it's coming. And then also, okay, so now you're sitting here in Babylon. Do you know why you're sitting here in Babylon? And also now, you're sitting in Babylon. 
Wouldn't you rather be back in Yerushalayim again? But do you know the road back? Do you know what the road back is? And do you know what it's going to look like when you get back there? Do you want it to be just the way you left it before? Or do you want it to be different? Which is why when you start getting into chapters 40 through 48, the end of the book, you see a temple there that is unlike Solomon's temple. And a very interesting thing when Yeshua was talking about how you trust in God and he gives the example when he's talking about the lilies of the field and he's saying Solomon in all his splendor was not adorned like one of these. Well, when you see that temple that's described there at the end of Ezekiel, that is totally unlike. It's bigger, it has a lot more grandeur, and it is certainly not Ichavod or Ichabod or the glory has departed. No, it is even far more spectacular because what is dwelling there? You have that promise, the dwelling place of God, to be among mankind. Something that you see coming to fruition and foretold coming to greater fruition, both with the coming of Yeshua, the Word made flesh, but then also, like as talked about also in Revelation 21 and 22, with the dwelling place of God coming down among mankind. So you see that this, this tension that's coming here between Yosef and his brothers about character. What kind of character now are you, Yehuda? What is your character? Are you going to be a leader, a leader of character? Or just a leader of happenstance. You just happen to be born into a particular role, and so thus, that's what you are. But the problem is, is throughout time, you see what happens if you have someone who's just born into a position, but they are not really a leader. What tends to happen over time? Chaos, they, as you see in, in English history and other histories of the planet, they, they tend not to live long. Or they drag down their entire country with them. And we see that in Israel's history. We see that in the history of European nations, in Eastern nations, what happens with people of character and not character and what happens to the people that are their subjects in that so you see that within this great revelation of Yehuda see Yosef is going to reveal himself to his brothers but his brothers are also revealing themselves to Yosef and also, you could say, revealing themselves to themselves. Because what is one of those things that a trial 
shows you. It it shows you <laughs> where it should show you where your challenges are in life, what your challenges are and what you face. That's why, you know, like in James chapter one, it talks about when you face these trials, what happens? They build, yes, patience, endurance, perseverance, and it builds, 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 builds until you are tamim, you are complete. You're not lacking anything because you have built up in the midst of being tested. You've faced against the struggle and come out the other side, which is what is kind of wrapped up in the name of Yisrael as a people that rule with, wrestle with, struggle with God and come out the other side. So what, what do you do? Are you going to be people that run headlong into the creator and are destroyed? Or do you run to the creator and are lifted up, strengthened, and then become a co-worker with the creator in the earth to actually go through and do something to build up a kingdom? So when we t take a look here further at this pattern of like Yosef, like Yeshua, and we look at some of these passages that we've reflected on here today from Luke 24 and John 20 and 21 and Romans chapter 11, we see that this continuum picture over and over and over again of someone, a leader who is concealed to those closest yosef concealed hidden away with his brothers but in the process being one who lifts up not only the brothers but also protects the brothers and brings the brothers through on the other side so let's take a look at some of these here so you see like in Yosef revealing himself to his brothers, it really parallels this revelation that Yeshua had to his brothers. As you see like in John chapter 1, it says that he came to, he came to his brothers, but they didn't what? Didn't recognize him. It's a very similar thing to what you see happen with Yosef, his brothers came to him and they didn't recognize him. And as we saw in the passage, they were shocked. I mean, can you imagine you sold off your brother and yeah, almost two decades later, you're now seeing him as the really, the one, the, the uh, chief operating officer, the vice president, the one doing the day-to-day running of a superpower of the time i mean can you imagine the, the shock i mean not only he's dressed completely differently looks completely different from them and you're thinking well this is my brother the one that we cast off as being a nuisance is really the one 
that has been put into a huge position of power. So we see that that passage that we were looking at there in Luke 24, which was the passage where you're seeing after the resurrection and you've seen these, these two disciples are walking along this road and they're talking about the things that are going on and like, wow, we've been hearing about all these things and it's been three days. What can, what can truly come of this? And you see that Yeshua is walking with them and you see a couple of really key things that Yeshua points out. It's first talking about, pointed out from the scriptures, the things related to what was going to happen and what the Messiah was going to do and was going to be. And then also, you see that he revealed himself in, it says, he revealed himself in the breaking of the bread. And it also revealed himself with what? The scars. The scars. So you see that the very interesting thing, and you see in the other Gospels, this picture that Yeshua has given, it was given a new body, different from the body that he was seen in before, but what was left there were the scars. The scars were left there as a sign, as a sign of what? A sign of sacrifice, a sign of commitment to what? Somebody else. Yes, Rose. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Is it possible in both cases that uh, it could have been the fact that they did not recognize him because of their unbelief? Yeah. They, I mean, the brothers totally believed that their brother was gone and, yeah. probably, and they, he probably got the sold last. and got killed and, you know. And then, uh, you know, Messiah, uh, you know, I mean, how could somebody die and resurrect again? I mean, we never heard of such a thing, you know. And so I'm thinking, although they wanted to believe, and they, they, did, they believed him while he was there and in the flesh, but then when he was resurrected, you know, the, uh, you know even Mary said, someone stole, the, someone stole our Lord, you know. I mean, she was there. You know, she didn't believe that he resurrected either. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe it was their unbelief. I mean, they, they wanted to believe, and they did. But on the other hand, they didn't. Yes. I mean, you know. And, 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 and also, you get the other passages where it talks about because of the grief that they were not able to, to believe. So you, you see, you know, when you experience unbel unbelievable grief, that's, you know, you're really you're really challenged when you have strong emotions about something to really think clearly, to see clearly, to see what's, what's going on there. So, uh, oh, Dan Danielle, uh, yes, go ahead, Danielle. You've got your hand up. Um, that also reminds me of how uh, it's really easy to believe someone when they're right there with you. Yes. Once they're gone, it's like, um, like it's like whenever teacher leaves the classroom, all the kids go crazy. 
But when, but when the teacher's there, there's that thing that, oh, she's um elder. She's my head, so I have to listen to them. But once they're gone, there's no head. So <laughs> yes. it's just like, oh, oh my gosh, we get a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Says, Levi says that's like him. Oh, yes. You, you, you only pay, pay attention to people when they're right in front of you. Yeah, you get that. Uh, there was the... There is, there's, a, there's a term for that. I'm trying to remember what the name of her is, like uh, permanency bias or something like that. Uh, yes, Carrie, go ahead. I was just thinking, I mean, yeah, there's the grief and everything, but the, there's a lot that had to be going through their minds. Like reading through it today, I was trying to put myself in their shoes yes. and what would my reaction have been and what would have passed through my mind. And, you know, if we go back to when Joseph had those two dreams... <sighs> his brothers not they they disbelieved him yes. you know like they didn't even the way they acted was like his dreams weren't even from god and and they actually thought otherwise they wouldn't have even done what they did they actually thought that they could that they could thwart god's plan mm. you know like they they didn't think the dreams were from god and so then they thought that they could make it to where he he wouldn't ever be in power above them, which was what the interpretation of the angel. So, so then to come, you know, this far forward after they think that they succeeded, you know, um, and, and then they land right smack dab in the middle of his two dreams, <laughs> like yes. as this, you know, reality that that they actually thought would never really come to pass. So, the, you know, so there's that element as well, you know, coupled with the grief and the, you know, um, and I'm sure the sorrow over the pain that they watched their father walk through all those years. And um, it's, it's kind of an incredulous experience, I think, for any person. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, to, to actually uh, see God working and to pay attention to God working. One of the things that the lessons that you get out of this section, this chapter 37 through 50 of Genesis, is that you see this realization from Yosef that, hey, the Lord is working through what's going on here. Um, a number of people have noticed over the centuries that, you know, how is it that Yosef was able to interpret the dream because a number of people have noticed that unlike with some of the other patriarchs, you don't have, well, the Lord said to Yosef, but you see that Yosef said to Pharaoh, hey, the Lord is the one. The Lord is the keeper of interpretation. It doesn't say specifically that he said to me this and that and the other. But the very interesting thing, and people have looked at this over hundreds of years, that Yosef's story through his family and what happened to his father with the whole thing with Lavan and you're, you know, working for seven years for Raquel, 
and then seven years to keep Raquel. So 14 years, seven and seven altogether. And noting that when they're talking about the seven fat cows or plump, plentiful cows, that the words there that are talking about the cows, the lean cows, and the ample fat cows are the same words that described Rachel being beautiful and Leah being uh, not so beautiful. It's somehow translated like weak, but it could also mean lean. So people have noticed that when Yosef is hearing this dream from Pharaoh about seven beautiful cows and seven weak cows, he's thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like what happened to my father. And when you think back to all of the ways that the Lord was with Yosef through the house of Potiphar, through the prisons, and then coming up out of the prisons, to then see, hey, the Lord is working through this. The Lord worked with my father and brought him through that, through Levan, where he went there as an exile. He was in exile from his older brother. And what he came out with was he was blessed with plenty. So then, likewise, Yosef, exiled from the brothers, from the family, and uh, yet coming out as being the prime minister, really the second in command to Pharaoh. And even as he described to his, his brothers, hey, I have become a father to Pharaoh. Basically, one in that sense of I have brought him really to life. Because really, if you think about it, if that had gone on without Yosef there, Mitzrayim would have been in the same boat as Canaan and everybody else. Yet, it was because Yosef was put there in Mitzrayim that Mitzrayim had life. So thus when you see the the revelation that these people of Mitzrayim are saying, hey, you saved us. Even though they've given what? Over all their livestock, all their produce, themselves, they've mortgaged themselves over and then also paying, <laughs> you know, annual payments on top of that. So they have mortgaged everything over. But do you realize where the blessings come from? Or do you think that you are just the master of everything? So, yes, uh, Anne, go ahead. Do you think that um, Jacob then um, had, had remembered the, the covenant that Abraham received and that dream that Abraham had or he was in that total darkness about the 400 years that Jacob had shared that at all with his 
family and taught them something about hmm. that at all. It's kind of an interesting thought. I well, don't it, it is an interesting thought. And, you know, when you, when you see what ends up happening as we get into our next uh, section, the next Torah reading, as it closes out through the end of Genesis, and you see the fulfillment of that vision that was given to Yaakov that we saw in this one, where he's there at Beersheba, and he's given this vision, hey, Yosef is going to close your eyes. Well, that indeed is what ended up happening, that Yosef did bring him back. And in great array, as we're going to read in the next one, this was an incredible royal procession <laughs> that came up from Mitzrayim to bury Yaakov up in the land. Uh, he was brought back in that generation, that fourth generation. Uh, from uh, from Abraham. So Abraham to Yitzhak to Yaakov to Yosef. Yosef was the one who brought him back. And the interesting aspect of that is that Yosef was the one who would bring him back, but you would see that Yehuda would be the one that would be given the scepter. And as we see the blessings that closes out Genesis with our next Torah reading. We'll see about the scepter with Yehuda and the scepter coming through Yehuda. So a very interesting picture that we have of Yosef being the one that comes through as protector and deliverer of a, of a form, but Yehuda is the one that comes through and reforms steps up owns up and then comes through as the leader to carry that leadership forward so it's a very it's a very great picture so when we see some of these other passages that we looked at here today like john chapter 20 and then you see again with thomas with this revelation of yeshua after the resurrection and Thomas then comes in and he's saying, well, unless, unless I physically handle, unless I physically handle these scars, I will not believe. Unless I got tangible proof, I will not believe. Yes. Uh, go ahead. Uh, we, we started to talk about it earlier and... Now we're talking about it again. Yes. Um, and this is the gospel according to Larilla Sunakahol in it. <laughs> Please. Um, but when I think of and when I meditate on those nail-scarred hands, the, the wound in the side, I, I really, it reminds me of his sacrifice for me. Yes. And I'm thinking that other people can see that. Yeah, they, they saw the nail and the spear scars, and so Thomas was able to believe. But for me, it's a reminder of everything that he did, everything that he sacrificed for me. And how can I push that aside? Mm. I need to remember 
And I think that those scars are as a remembrance. Yeah. And we all are just reading about the scars. So just like what Yeshua said to Thomas, blessed are those, happy are those who do not see and yet trust. So we just read about the scars. And for us, the trust, hey, there is someone who cares that the creator of heaven and earth cares so much. You know, just, just like you see earlier that, you know, as you in John chapter one, it talks about the word becoming flesh, and then it builds up to a crescendo there in John chapter three. And you're saying, hey, heaven cares so much that heaven sent the son that whoever is going to trust in the son is not going to perish but have everlasting life because and then it goes on and says hey the son was not sent to do what to condemn but that the world would be saved through so thus when we get into and we see the other passages that we looked at in John chapter 21, where you see that they are having this meeting, the, the apostles, the disciples that are down by the lake, and they're feeling despondent and you know, various ways that you could see it, but I tend to think to the idea you go back to the things that you know and the things that occupy your time you know if you're someone who knits you go to knitting as you think if you're someone who builds you go to building or doing something to think so for peter probably was fishing so like i'm going fishing so they went out and what you see here is just if you roll back the tape, it was just like when Peter first met Yeshua. And so when the fish were coming in, just like, you know, Yosef meeting the brothers and the brothers realizing, hey, this is our brother. So thus Peter realizing when the fish, because he had seen that before, he'd seen the fish loading in there before and one just saying, hey, put down your net. You're going to get lots of fish. So, and knowing that that one was the one that said, hey, you're good at fishing, but you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be one in the kingdom, tossing the net of the kingdom of God out into the world. And that net is going to be loaded with fish so much so that you can't even count and pull it in. Yes. Yes, uh, Lorella, go ahead. When he first met Jesus, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Yes. And then Peter did something that he wasn't sure he could ever be forgiven for. Yes. And Jesus asked him three times, when you see this, it's like, I can still be a fisher of men? You know, I, I can still be useful in this kingdom even after what I did. And I think that's part of that too. Yeah, because especially as you kind of 
see it, it gets glossed over a bit in the English, but when you take a little look under the, under the hood of the, uh, the Greek there on the words that are translated love, do you love me? And it starts out in the, the, the general senses of phileo, which is a, just a brotherly love like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But then it finally ends up as like, hey, do you, do you truly even love me closely? And then you see, you see this great picture that Peter is like, oh my, oh my, who has truly shown love? Who has truly shown love and what has Peter shown love back in? Yes, God is love, but here you have Yeshua reaching out again to Peter and saying, yeah, I know that you probably didn't even do brotherly love to me. You sort of threw me in the pit, so to speak. But still, hey, feed the sheep, get back at it. You know, you were called to be a rock. So get back at it, being the rock. So as we see also in Romans chapter 11, you see a similar picture with what Paul is talking about is this illustration from Romans chapter 9 through 11 where the illustration of this olive tree. And he's building up saying, well, what happened? What happened with Israel? Israel is given the oracles, as you see there in like Romans chapter 2. Why is Israel so important? They're the one that carried the oracles of God and faithful at it. But do you pay attention to the oracles? So thus you're there with the illustrations that you see in Romans 9 through 11. To the point of where in 11 you're like, the Lord planted this tree planted this olive tree. But do you want to stay a part of the olive tree? Do you want to, Israel, do you want to stay a part of what God has started? Or would you rather just be pruned off? Because others, others are interested in being a part of what the Lord started. Uh, Yes, Pamela, go ahead. You have your uh, hand up there. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. First of all, is the 400 years um, that they were talking about from Abraham, or was it four generations? Because that might be different. Um, Yeah, right. Because, you know, like grandma and child and so forth. Yes. Then the other question is about the coming future. Uh, is the government a dictator? Is the government welfare? Um, so, those yeah. are my two questions. Okay. So the interesting one about I thought there are the the four hundred years, and you know people have come up with different calculations on it, and you'll see what the 
the um well you'll see it later on in uh, like in the historical books when they'll talk about how long it was uh from the time of the the exodus out to the 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 building of the temple and such like that and the picture that you get is that one idea is that the 400 years is inclusive of basically the clock started with the vision and then goes down through to the time of when they come back up out of it. So it's all inclusive of, of all of that because that is what the vision encountered. It, the descent down and then the, the rise back up. Because when you were strictly speaking looking at it, um, that's why you'll see the Septuagint talking about 210 years with the way it, it figures the, the time there. You, you get that idea. That could be how long they were actually down in captivity in Egypt for only about 210 years. So 400 years being inclusive around that. That's one idea of it. And on the, the, the subject of the uh, government and uh, it being a, an oppressive government or one where you're uh, living off of a welfare environment of it, this is one of those things that you, you see that as we get down into the Torah instructions, why you'll see that it talks about you will always have the poor among you, but take care of the poor. Take care of those around you who need help. That is what your duty is. Now, you see what will happen if you let the administration of taking care of the people who need help gets too big. What ends up happening with it? Neglect. You end up neglecting the people who need the help, and you end up burning a whole lot of what help there could be in trying to do the help. And then if it goes too far, you can also uh, end up not really helping the people that you're trying to help. So with this kind of a situation of, um, you, you, you might say this is being like disaster relief, what uh, Yosef was undertaking there with the famine, a disaster relief thing where you're like, okay, we stored up everything and now we're going to let it go and also uh, sell in the process and as a part of that, consolidate the power underneath this one pharaoh. Well, like we were saying at the outset, that's great if you have a, quote, benevolent dictator, but what happens when your dictator is not so benevolent anymore? Because, I mean, strictly speaking, a king, whether you're talking about an earthly king or the king of all kings, is one that says, this is the way it goes. Now, strictly speaking, that is a dictator. But the question comes in is, who do you trust? With humans, you never really can trust because they can be one way and then they can flip if they don't have what? Character. That solid character that 
anchors them like a rock that you can depend on what direction they're going to go in. Which is what the model that heaven has shown us is that, yes, heaven is the master, the creator, the one that says, hey, this is the way to life. This is the way to death. And in the end, we're going to end this path towards death because it's just dragging everything down with it. That way of death is going to go away. So you could say, well, that's dictatorial. Well, you get back to trust. Do you trust that the path to life is the better way to go? Even if it's, you could say, chosen for the entire world. But in the end, you can say, I don't want to go down the, the road of life. I like, you know, just get on the, the highway to death and just hit the gas and yeehaw. And that's the way you live your life. Okay. We're, it's been revealed that where that path goes and it doesn't continue on. But you can choose that path. That's fine. But do you trust the one who says, hey, I created everything and I'm going to recreate everything. And this is the way that really leads to life. Do you trust that that way is going to go? Okay. Well, if you trust that, and that person then has the power to put these things into effect and to change things, then that's great. But be careful when you put too much faith into humans with that kind of power, because we see what can happen with that. And... We see also in history, we'll see it as we kind of move on into the book of Exodus, what happens between when you have a benevolent dictator, Pharaoh, that knows Joseph, knows the God of Joseph, and the Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, or you might say chooses not to know, which is kind of more like a Romans chapter one <laughs> approach. They choose not to know Joseph, and they choose not to know the God of Joseph, and then lock horns with the God of Joseph on, on until the country is brought nearly to the brink of ruin. Yes, uh, Alex. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. The, God yes. had his hands full with the tribe. He had to keep, <laughs> they had to finally digest the message. Yeah. And of course, the next thing was Yeshua come along. But in the meantime, they were surrounded by powerful, yes, idol-worshipping dictators, my favorite Phoenicians, oh, and I'm Phoenicians, reading that yes. they were sacrificing children up into the common era. Yes. In Yeshua's time. Yes. Maybe it was at a far-flung place, and they were thinking, man, we got to get it together, and yes. the Romans didn't even want them to do it. They were disgusted by it. But this is not fables. Yes. This is actually history, yeah. who these people were. And but one of the things that we were talking about, like with e Ezekiel, and um, in Ezekiel, there is a talk about Tyr, the king of Tyr, Tyre, and being a model or a figure that, that is a pattern for seeing what happened with the adversary and, and heaven. But you see in there that 
frontier with its wealth and its trade with the nations, the, the capital of uh, the great merchant marine fleet of the known world at the time, and all the goods that they bring in. Well, as we mentioned before, Israel is mentioned as a customer of Tyre. They're not a thought leader. They're not a spiritual leader of Tyre. Tyre is driving not only commerce, but also morality and spirituality of it. Tyre has taken over control of it. So I guess you always be careful is with you have the Phoenician blinds because they basically close over your vision of being able to see the creator. And all you see is the trade. Uh, yes, go, go ahead. Yeah, this podcast I've been listening to recently, they were actually talking about um, that um, the Phoenicians, and particularly talking about the time period of Omri and Ahab. Yes. And you see this juxtaposition of, in the Bible record, Omri is barely mentioned at all. Yep. Ahab we learned a little bit more about, right? But Ohab, Omri is basically a byword in the Torah. But in the archaeological record, Omri is everywhere. Yeah. And he was so powerful that the king of Tyre and Sidon married off their daughter to his son. So we yep. see Jezebel, right? And then when we read in the Torah, it isn't so much about Ahab. It isn't Omri and Ahab so much. It's more like Omri and Jezebel. Yep. And that Jezebel, basically, how they phrase it in the podcast I'm listening to, basically what she did in the days of Elijah was basically a genocide, an ethnic cleansing campaign. She wanted to wipe out all knowledge of Hashem in the Northern Kingdom. Uh, yep. Did a you pretty know, good she, job. She uh, eradicated most of the prophets um, of uh, Hashem there, and to the point where Elijah was one of the few still standing. So you see that flipped, and they were also talking about how the, they're talking about the archaeological record too. Omri is everywhere in the archaeological record to the point where future kings of like Babylon and other places, even after Omri's line was destroyed, and there are other dynasties in Israel. The outside kingdoms always refer to Israel as a house of Omri. That's how significant he was. But yet in the Bible, he's a byword. He is just nothing to God. But David, who was a man after God's own heart, and is mentioned in the Torah very often, and you know every king in Judah is compared to David thereafter. This one is a king like David, or this one was a king not like David. But in the archaeological records so far, there's barely any mention of David. So, and it was only relatively recently that they even found any mention of David whatsoever in the archaeological record, maybe 20 years ago. So it shows how the world esteems people, certain kinds of people, but God, who he esteems, and who he is going to esteem in the Messianic age, is totally different. Yes. And we have the opportunity to choose. Every generation has the opportunity to choose. Do they want to side with Omri and Jezebel, or do they want to side with David and Yeshua and these Yosef, these people of faith? We, every generation has that opportunity. Yeah. So that, that's a great lesson is to be careful who you deem to be Omri present. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, go, go ahead, Larry. Well, it's like that. <clears throat> That thing that you that you put up early in our 
in our service that says, you know, the servant is temporary, but the son stays forever. Yes. So who do you put your trust in? Yes. Talk about the rock. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the, the great lessons that we have from the, um, the you know, letter to the Hebrews, book of Hebrews there, is this picture of the order of Melchizedek, is that basically you have something that God has in place that persists on, whether the tabernacle is open for business, whether the temple is open for business, whether Yerushalayim is open for business or not. Because that's one of the pictures that you also see in Ezekiel is that, hey, there is this heaven reality. There is the heavenly picture of Yerushalayim. And it is it's still in place. It is going no matter what things happen here on earth. But that which is seen to be the otherworldly is going to be the only worldly at some point in time when the one who set things into place the creator puts them back into place there at the day of the lord so that great picture because you see in in uh, the book of revelation you see it's interesting that they what is jerusalem compared to earlier in the book of revelation Sodom. Yes. Because it says, and Sodom, the place where our Lord was killed. So, Jerusalem is compared to Sodom. But then you see later on, what is the true Jerusalem? Comes down out of heaven, the heaven, the Jerusalem from above. And that's when you see, like in Hebrews chapter 11, that's what Abraham and the others, they see. They see what the what the true picture is. You know, the, you could, you, we always talk about visionaries, the ones who can, you know, look at like an empty piece of land and see an office building or whatever, because they have the vision to see what other people say. There's nothing there. There's no value in that whatsoever. But a visionary can look at that and go, "Wow!" Like we see the eyes of the servant of Elisha, his eyes being opened and saying, hey, we're doomed. But what is actually revealed? You actually have whole armies. The whole armies of heaven are out there. Then they can be ushered in at any particular time to bring things to pass. So the question goes back again is, well, which leadership do you actually trust and thus with that leadership that we do trust how then does that form leadership that we can be trustworthy we can be trustworthy leaders within our families within our workplaces within our country within wherever we are because just like the Lord is dependable, so then we can learn to be dependable as well. Dependable in whatever we do. And like when you see in the, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes when it talks about when you work, 
do it to God. Work as if the Lord is your employer. You know, you don't need a massive supervision because what? Because you say, well, whatever task I do, I'm doing it as if I'm doing it for the Lord. It's like we were talking about last week that those who are followers of the creator of heaven and earth are the most dependable citizens, whether you're in Babylon, whether you're in Persia, whether you're in China, wherever. But those people who are, quote, the Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, unquote, hate those people. Because why? Because they would say to these leaders the same things that the apostles said to the Sanhedrin. Hey, we have to obey God. You know, you have authority that you claim, but we must obey God. The Lord established authorities here, but still when you are saying, hey, you must do something different from what the Lord says, you know, we have to obey God. You're still respectful, but when those are being telling you to do something different, in the kingdom of God, there is no, I was just following orders. You know, there is no, nothing like that. Because that's one of the things that Yeshua told us. There is something worse than the death of the body. Fear the one who can take who you are and throw that into the lake of fire. If your body, the creator can recreate your body. But who you are, you throw that away. Well, he says that that will be thrown away into the lake of fire. So thus, we don't ever lose ourselves. So thus, that goes back to the whole character again. Building a dependable, a dependable version of ourselves that is true on the outside as it is true in the inside. That, you know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that, I hope, is a great picture that we can get from this section of Vayigash. And you could see Yehuda facing up to his past and then moving and developing into the leader that his uh, tribe then becomes to be and being a progenitor, a ancestor for the Messiah will come down through, kings will come through Yehuda, the Mashiach comes through Yehuda. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.